The 630 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 630 Chad. Gaging conversation with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Breaking news with Eileen Bell and sports with Morley Scott. This is the Afternoon News on 630 Chad, Edmonton's breaking news and conversation station. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the 6.30 Chet Afternoon News. It's 2.05 on this Wednesday afternoon. A reminder, your Edmonton Oilers in action tonight in uh, L.A. taking on the Kings. The uh, puck drop. It's a late one tonight, 8.30. It's an 8.30, which means uh, one hour of inside sports followed by an hour and a half of the uh, pregame show. Mm-hmm. It's Jalen so. Nye, Andrew Gross. There you go. Along for the ride this afternoon. We're going to get right to it this afternoon. It's, uh, it's a story, a gruesome story, truly, that has captured the country's attention. 66-year-old Bruce MacArthur, who Toronto police believe is a serial killer. He's been charged with five counts of first-degree murder, the murders of five gay men from in and around Toronto, including including three whose body parts were found in the bottom of large planters large planters at a, at a Toronto home. Police arrested MacArthur after seeing him walk into his apartment building with a young man. When they got to his apartment, they found that young man handcuffed to a bed, but unharmed. Police believe he may be, he may be responsible for more murders, and they say they don't know how high the toll will climb. What we know about serial killers, though, Chedville, tends to be what we glean from Hollywood movies or TV shows. So to learn more, we dialed up Ju Young Lee, an associate professor at the University of Toronto and an expert on serial killers. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. You know, the obvious uh, first question would be what makes, uh, what defines someone as a serial killer, but I want to ask you instead, what defines somebody as a serial killer expert? Because there has to be a a lack of database for that. Sure. So a serial killer expert. So in my work, I have uh, written a textbook with a colleague of mine uh, that sort of dispels many of the commonly held myths about serial killers. Um, And I've published articles in peer-reviewed journals, both in criminology and also in sociology about serial killers or serial homicide cases more generally. Um, And you're right to note that there's a lack of, uh, I guess, evidence and stuff that we can build our expertise off of. But um, you know, a, a big amount of this work actually came out in the 80s, and it was published by the FBI, a law enforcement organization in the U.S. that uh, basically started interviewing serial killers that had been um, arrested and incarcerated, and based much of their their sort of idea about the whole phenomenon on these interviews. Um, but you know, one of the things that I'm doing and that other colleagues of mine are doing is that we're showing that there is something to be gained from an outsider's perspective, someone who's not, who's not principally in charge of trying to arrest uh, <laughs> wrongdoers. That there's things that we don't really understand if we only rely on the police narrative about who, who these people are and, and, and how they get away with it. So that's kind of, I guess, where I come into the whole scheme of things. Okay. Interesting. So commonly accepted a serial killer has had how many victims? So the FBI's definition is it means that a person has killed three or more people during separate events with a cooling-off period. Um, and that's sort of uh, a very vague term, but it usually refers to a week or two at least in between different kills. And that's mm-hmm. to differentiate somebody who's a spree killer who goes on a spree and maybe kills family members and then people who wrong them 
um, and also mass killers, people who kill multiple people in a single event. Um, so there's, there's some sort of like, there, there are technical definitions. The problem, however, though, is that criminologists have been critiquing this definition, saying that it's really only focused on the number and the frequency of killing, and it doesn't take into account people's motivations. Hmm. Um, so the, the FBI definition, for example, could include someone who's a gang member who kills multiple hmm. people over time on different locations. It could uh, include a mafia hitman who kills multiple people in different events with a cooling-off period. And those, those types of murderers are very different than the kind that we talk about when we talk about serial killers, people who have a sense of satisfaction and gratification from killing people over time. They do it for enjoyment, or the thrill of it, or lust, or something like that. Yes, exactly, and that's one of the main, I guess, differences, that a mafia hitman may enjoy it uh, insofar as he or she is um, carrying out the work on behalf of you know, the, the mob, or a gang member may also do it because they gain respect, but that that kind of enjoyment is different than the pleasure that certain murderers get from controlling people, from, from torturing them, and from killing them. Hmm. Are there any um, typical or common characteristics, Ju Young? Uh, there's quite a bit of variation, but I think the one thing that the serial killers do have in common is, again, this sense that they enjoy killing or they enjoy the process of killing, that there's a gratification that comes from that. Uh, there are different types of serial killers, and they're just very numerous, but some of them get a thrill out of just controlling another person and dominating them um, and, and sort of playing God. Others um, get a sexual thrill that they enjoy um, killing people because it allows them a chance to uh, practice and act out dark sexual fantasies. There are others who are mission-oriented, which means that um, they, they feel as if they're doing the world a favor by getting mm -hmm. rid of a certain kind of person or a certain population. So that's just to say that basically there are tons of different kinds of serial killers. Huh. Yeah. You know, as chilling as this conversation has already it's been. Fascinating. Uh, yeah, it is fascinating. Let me take it down another a few degrees. Isn't one of the other characteristics among serial killers the age at which they typically begin their murdering spree? And that would be somewhere in the 30s. And we're, in this case, talking about Bruce MacArthur. He's in his 60s. So yeah. assuming that he falls into the typical category, there may be far many more victims than we're aware. Yeah, that's definitely one of the things that has come up in the wake of this investigation, which is that we don't see a lot of serial killers who are being caught in their 60s. Um, that's kind of rare, and there, there are a number of reasons for that, one of which is that people get caught, and if they begin in their... 20s or 30s, as you kind of alluded to, then they're not out there, you know, doing what they do, which is killing people. Um, but it's not unheard of. So just a couple years ago in Los Angeles, there was a man by the name of Lonnie Franklin Jr., who was nicknamed the Grim Sleeper by the media. Lonnie Franklin had been murdering uh, prostitutes um, in South Central Los Angeles for upwards around 20 years, and he got the nickname Grim Sleeper because... Uh, for about a decade in that time span, he seemed to have stopped. Huh. And police thought that maybe the case would never get solved. Um, fast forward, he was caught, and he was also in his mid-60s. So 
it's not totally unheard of, but it is a bit uncommon because, um, you know, serial killers, are they, if they get caught, so that's the big question, if, if they get caught, they get caught um, usually in their 20s and 30s. Hmm. Well, it's interesting, too, because trying to learn more about serial killers, the reasons why, their backgrounds, all of that sort of thing, you have to catch the serial The serial killer has to be caught, and then the serial killer has to be willing to talk to someone. And I'm guessing that, you know, some have, obviously, but others are like, no, and are certainly not going to confess to anything more than what they've been charged with. Exactly. And that's one of the big challenges with... Um figuring out the total death count attributed to a single serial killer is that a lot of times they don't want to talk and this is especially true of psychopathic serial killers people who lack that kind of empathy and remorse um, and a sense of guilt Um, but there are other serial killers who have actually come out and who express relief uh, once they've been caught And, and I wouldn't say that they are typical but Someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, for example, also known as the Milwaukee Cannibal, Mm -hmm. uh, when he was captured, he came out and said right away uh, and confessed to a number of different killings and said that he he did feel remorse. Now, there are people who say they didn't believe him. They said that this could have also been part of a performance he was doing to win over uh, favor in the eyes of police. But at least in their accounts, some serial killers do express remorse and and do come forward. but, But that's not necessarily the norm. Uh, an interesting side story to this, as though it needed one, um, is that uh, Bruce MacArthur's son was actually convicted for uh, several offenses with regard to um, you know, obscene phone calls and predatory behavior uh, with women, which might suggest... Um, that they're, because they're related, that there's some, I don't know, biological or neurobiological connection between the two. Has there been any research about the families of serial killers? Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, I'm a sociologist, so mm-hmm. I, I, I guess I, I should put out that I'm a little bit skeptical of the biological or supposed biological links between one person and the next. Um, we have many examples, for for instance, of you know family members, brothers, sisters, even parents who um, do not offend and do not commit crimes. And then there's just, I guess you could call them a bad apple or somebody in the family who does do these horrific things. And we see that also with mass shooters. Um, but there is some work in this area. It's just very far from being definitive at this point. Is there any truth to, um, you know, when we talk about serial killers over the years, I've, I've heard things like um, they liked setting fires when they were a kid. Maybe they wet the bed past the age of 12. Maybe they liked, um, they started off by hurting animals. Does that, is any of that truth? Yeah, so th- you're referring to what's known as the McDonald triad. Yeah. And it's this idea that, yeah, there are these behaviors that are predictive that help us see a person's you know, likelihood or, or increased risks of becoming a serial killer. Um, so there's been a lot of controversy over this and, and not a lot of real solid research to support these as predictive factors. Um, you know, for example, many people who wet the bed, or I should say most people who wet the bed or who even hurt small animals or who play with fire will never be, go on to become a serial killer. So there's a little bit of a mm-hmm. problematic logic, a, a jump that people make. Um, 
But what we do find, though, is amongst serial killers, we do see that there is a, a prevalence of some of these behaviors um, in combination or individually. And so that leads people to believe mistakenly that, oh, if a person is doing these things and they're going to become a serial killer. <laughs> but um, the, the other pattern is that a lot of people wet the bed. A lot of people, you know, hurt animals either ex you know, from experimenting with them or, you know, whatever. But they never become serial killers. So it's, it's tough to really make that jump, I would say. Hmm. Okay. So all poodles are dogs, but not all dogs are poodles. <laughs> um, yeah, that's a good, yeah, great analogy. Yeah, let, let me ask you this. The Hollywood... Uh, version of a serial killer is someone, uh, a loner, extremely intelligent. Um, are there any characteristics? So you, you know how after any of these events... I, I think of Hannibal Lecter. Exactly. Right? And you hear two things, you know, like, well, he's a quiet guy, didn't really, you know, make much of a, a you know, commotion in the neighborhood, didn't really notice him. Um, but then Hollywood always seems to portray them as really intelligent. Are either of those things uh, common? They're partial truths, but again, like anything with Hollywood, they... <laughs> are very distorted uh, representations of serial killers. So, you know, the Hannibal Lecter is a great example. There's this belief that all serial killers are masterminds, and that's just not the case. There are some serial killers who uh, have been able to elude law, elude law enforcement, like the Zodiac Killer, one of the most infamous unsolved cases in U.S. history. Um, there are also serial killers who have been tested with high IQs, like Ed Kemper, also known as a co-ed killer. But there are also a broad variety of the other serial killers who made dumb mistakes and were caught. Um, there are others who, when they were incarcerated, were tested and they had below average IQ, almost to the point of being um, special needs. So there's a lot of variation, and that gets kind of swept away in these movies. Ju Young Lee, an associate professor at the University of Toronto and an expert in serial killers, joining us on the phone this afternoon. And we thank him for taking the time uh, to do so. Wondering about um, serial killers and the locations where they kill. Um, you know, if you look at this case with, you know, Bruce MacArthur, um, uh, the, the victims, all gay men, there was um, uh, talk uh, about um, a serial killer in Toronto's gay district for a very, very long time, the um, Bruce MacArthur himself, gay. But when you're looking at um, where he did it, allegedly, right now, it's kind of located in Toronto. We're looking at him. He was a door-to-door -door salesman or, or something at one point and could be all the way across yeah, underwear and the country. Yeah. So do they tend to spread out and do their killing in, in, in different locations far away from each other? Do they tend to focus in one area, or is it a bit of both? It's a bit of both, but I would say that one of the things that makes these cases so difficult, and if indeed um, Bruce MacArthur turns out to be, or they find enough evidence to convict him of these hor horrific crimes, one of the things that's going to be very difficult is going to be figuring out his whereabouts and mm -hmm. potentially more victims because serial killers uh, do move around. The FBI once said in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way that the long truck driver on the freeway was the perfect occupation for a serial killer, mm -hmm. somebody who was always on the move, going in between different states and different locales and never really staying in one place. And that makes it incredibly difficult for law enforcement because then you have missing persons cases or even, you know, people's bodies and remains found in different places. And there's no way to really know 
if they're linked. The FBI did create a system um, of reporting where local law enforcement could put in uh, cases, unsolved cases, to see if they could establish patterns. But, you know, that's not a mandatory thing. So a lot of people don't um, submit their data to that database. And um, at least to, to my knowledge, something similar does not exist in Canada, although I could be wrong about that. But You, you know, that's specifically what I wanted to follow up with you about. You mentioned pattern. Mm-hmm. Is it the pattern that that typically brings down a serial killer? Yeah, that's definitely one of the the tips. Like, if if especially if um, police are finding remains and they're they're discarded or mutilated in the same characteristic ways, that's usually a tip off. Um, another one is if multiple people disappear within a short within a you know a short amount of time in the same place, which is kind of how I think this case started to break. Those are usually two of the big telltale signs that Mm. something is amiss and that a possible serial killer is out there. Joe Young, I could talk to you all afternoon about this. Um, Just absolutely fascinated. Um, We are out of time, though. I want to thank you for taking, uh, for you taking the time to join us this afternoon. And I I do look forward to uh, speaking, uh, speaking with you at another time. Thank you so much for having me. Very good. Thank you so much. Ju Young Lee joining us this afternoon. Write that name and phone number down. Yeah, we'll be we're going back that to one. that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Fascinating. All right, uh, 222 on the 630 Chet Afternoon News. A quick break here and we'll be back. Interesting conversation with the associate professor of the University of Toronto on serial killer. A morbid way to start the show, uh, but it was. And sorry about that because today is actually Hump Day. There you go. So there you go, guys. Uh, should probably mention as well before we cheer everybody up that there is a winter storm warning issued across <laughs> central and south Alberta, southern Alberta, up to 40 centimeters of snow possible. Uh, something to think about if you're heading. We're going to miss it for the most part. So says. Uh, Jesse Byer at Global uh, Television. We're going to miss it here in Edmonton, but from Red Deer South and West, it looks really, really bad at this point. Possibly 25 to 35 centimeters of snow uh, in uh, higher elevations in the mountains along the foothills. Snowfall accumulations could reach as high as 50 centimeters. That's a lot. Uh, the towns affected include Calgary, Banff, Lethbridge, Red Deer, Medicine Hat, Cochrane, Olds, Jasper National Park, and Rocky Mountain House. So you'll want to be uh, checking back with 511 to see what those road conditions look like. Uh, I think I named one of the towns you intend to drive to. I'm supposed to go to Lake Louise tomorrow. Right. You're yeah. supposed to go to Red Deer on Friday. <laughs> uh, you know, Red Deer will be fine. Yeah, Lake Louise, I'm not so sure. We'll see, but you know. We'll see tomorrow. We'll yeah. see what it looks like tomorrow. We'll go from there. Whatever you're getting paid, it's never worth it to risk your life, right? Yeah, well, exactly. Something exactly. I mean, I hear it all the time, but I've never actually missed a gig because of weather. But I've certainly gotten to gigs where the crowd didn't. <laughs> <laughs> where I insist that I still get paid. I'm here. I'm here. I'll do Come it for on. the janitor. No, they're all out there. It's been a conference all week, and this is kind of the wrap-up Ah, thing. good, okay. But anyway, all good. Um, yeah, I actually just had a text from Lake Louise saying uh, there's no there's no snow out there right now. Okay. So All right. <laughs> maybe it's going to happen tonight. Well, we'll keep an eye Kaboom. on it. Hour to hour. Kaboom. We'll keep you updated on the weather as usual. And, of course, the traffic conditions right here in Edmonton. Right now, though, Eileen Bell in your 2.30 News. The 6.30 Chad Afternoon News with Jaylen Nye and Andrew Gross. Weekdays at 2 on 6.30 Chad.